Robin, thanks again to the worship team. We were we were worshiping with you this morning, and uh, and Jared, I was singing "Reckless Love" when you were singing it, brother. It was it was just coming out of your heart. I just really appreciate that. We're going to spend some uh, time in prayer this morning, a little bit differently. Um, this is the start of a school year, and so we're going to be praying for teachers this morning. Uh, teachers, whether you're homeschooling or whether you're teaching in uh, classes at home like music at home, whether you're in a Christian school at Horizon or whether you're in a public school, if you're a teacher this morning, I'm not going to ask you to come up, but I would like to ask you to stand if that's okay. If you're a teacher this year, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand up. If there's Great. Yeah, it's good. <clears throat> We're going to pray for you guys, and you see them now, you see where they are, and those are around you. If you want to extend your hand in a symbolic way of laying hands on them, uh, that would be great. And yeah, you can keep standing. We're just going to pray for you, and I pray a blessing on you guys. So let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for these teachers. And Father, I ask that you give us a love for learning. Also, just because the world is yours and all things in the world speak of you. The things of this world speak of your mind, your designs, your artistry, your power, your unfolding purpose. And Father, this morning we recognize that all knowledge is your knowledge. All wisdom is your wisdom. And so, Father, as we are starting to fall a new school year, we ask your special grace for these teachers. We ask this blessing on these teachers. Teachers, may the light of your soul bless your work with love and warmth of heart. May you see in the lives of your students the beauty of your own soul. May your sacredness of your work bring light and renewal to your students. May your work never exhaust you. Instead, may it refresh you and bring fresh water to satisfy a thirst that you have to impart learning. Father, may, this, may your work, we ask that their work inspire them and excite them. And teachers, may you never become lost to the blandness of your routine. May the children and students never become a burden to you. And may the hope in your hearts be there to offer hope and promises to your students. May the Holy Spirit bless you and shelter you and keep your soul calm and consoled and renewed. May your classrooms be filled with the graciousness and love of the Savior. Father, we ask that you supply every need this year, and we praise you already for this provision. Father, we pray for those who are in authority. And you ask that you give them a special wisdom and kindness as they deal with faculty and they deal with the, the disciplinary actions so that the students may flourish and recognize the grace and love that come ultimately from you. So, Father, our sum, we sum up our prayer this morning to empower them to do your work, their kingdom work, with whatever student that walks through their doors. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated.
We are finishing up, we finished up our, uh, our series on uh, the Holy Spirit in general, but then the summer we had this special sort of sub-series on how the Holy Spirit speaks to us and, and listening to God for normal people. And uh, we finished that up last week and we're starting something new for the fall this, uh, this Sunday. We just want to introduce it this Sunday uh, because we, we stress this in the, in the summer uh, and a lot of stress is in on our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and our personal relationship to hear the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and that is really, it's great. The Bible teaches that. But when we kind of put those things together with the American exaggerated sense of individualism, it kind of can twist the gospel if we're, not, if, we're not, if we're not careful. It can take on a whole new meaning with this individualism that it's all about me, that uh, my salvation, my spiritual growth, my emotional well-being, my spiritual walk, my walk with Christ, and we can kind of tend to be a little bit navel-gazing on that. Uh, we talk about our personal relationship. I mean, our, accepting your, Jesus as your personal Lord and, and, and Savior kind of just sort of rolls off our tongues these days. But if we're not careful, it can also become sort of this idea that Jesus is my personal valet or my personal butler. And we need to balance that out. And so what I thought that we would do this for the fall is balance it out with the church with uh, where we are as a church. Um, many of you have seen, and I've done this over and over again, uh, mentioned my definition, my favorite definition of Christian spiritual formation. And I mentioned that Christian spiritual formation because everyone in the world is formed spiritually somehow by their, uh, their homes, their family, their education, their friends. They are formed spiritually. Their spirit is formed somehow. But Christian spiritual formation this is my favorite definition. It is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. Every word in that definition by Robert Mulholland is important. It is a process. It is a lifelong process. Uh, we don't just, it didn't just fall on our heads one day and we become instantly, instantly sanctified. It is this process that's all that goes through the entire life and the process is being conformed to the image of Christ. So that we are like Jesus. And it's not just for me and my personal walk and how I can feel hope. And all that is great and all that is wonderful and part of it. But it is for the sake of others. It is outward looking. It is community looking. It is other people looking. It's not just so that we can feel good about ourselves. Uh, when Katie was my daughter was a little girl, uh, we're going to talk about today the reconciliation of a people and not just the reconciliation of a person. I mean, we talked about reconciliation and, and, and about the personal relationship all summer long, but now we're going to talk about reconciliation of a people, of a group of people. So we're getting back to my daughter. Uh, her, one of her favorite books as she, that she loves as a child, and it was actually my favorite book to read to her as a child, and it still is my favorite book, my favorite children's book, is Chester's Way, and uh, it's about this little mouse, and uh, this little, little mouse named Chester, and he has his own way of doing things. He likes croquet, he likes peanut butter, and he likes making his bed. Uh, he always cuts his sandwiches diagonally. He always double knots his shoes before he leaves the house. Uh, he always has the same thing for breakfast, toast, peanut butter, and jam. And uh, that's just the thing he does. And, and he, his best friend is a guy named, is a little, another little mouse named Wilson. And they're best friends because they all like the same things. When those two play baseball, they never strike at the first pitch. They never slide 
first base and head first uh, when they're sliding into a base or home plate. They always be careful and they always carry a first aid kit in their back pocket just in case. So that's what these kids are, are like. And there's this running refrain that runs through the book called Chester and Wilson. Wilson and Chester, that's the way it was. And so every time they go through, they go, Chester and Wilson, Wilson and Chester, that's the way it was. And then Lily moves into the neighborhood. <clears throat> and Lily has her way of doing things. She never leaves the house without one of her disguises. Uh, Wilson, for Wilson and Chester, they're kinda, they, they see her as kind of scary. Uh, when she calls them up, they, they disguise their voice and, and pretend they're not at home. Uh, when they see her walking on the sidewalk, they go to the other side of the sidewalk, and they, don't, they try to avoid her. For her, that she's just too much, because Lily, um, she can be a little scary. She likes to do cartwheels, and she likes to, do, and she likes to pop wheelies, wheelies on her bike, while Chester and Wilson, they practice their hand signals. So they're not really sure how to take her, and she wears Band-Aids all over her arms and legs just so that she will look brave. Uh, she, uh, and she, instead of a uh, first aid kit in her back pocket, she carries a water pistol, just in case. <laughs> That's her. So, spoiler alert, the three of them become best friends. They decide that they've got a lot in common, and what, that, what happens is uh, Chester and Wilson, for Christmas they gave her extra long shoelaces so that she can learn how to double knot her shoes, and they teach her how to play croquet, and Lily teaches them how to pop wheelies, and they teach her hand signals, and they cut their, their sandwiches diagonally, but, but Lily teaches them how to use a cookie cutter so that they can make uh, stars and flowers and bells out of their sandwiches. And they become the best of friends. And for Halloween, they go dressed up as three blind mice. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> instead of Chester and Wilson, who went as ham and eggs one time, or salt and pepper. And so now the refrain is, Chester and Wilson and Lily. Lily and Wilson and Chester. That's the way it was. Chester, Wilson, and Lily. Lily, Wilson, and Chester. And that's the way it was. And then the last page, Victor moves into the neighborhood. <laughs> <clears throat> to me, that's a great story about, not just about friendships, <clears throat> but it's a great story to me uh, as a pastor about a church. Because... We tend to do church the way Chester and Wilson do it a lot of times. Uh, we tend to uh, re think of the church in those ways. Uh, in the United States, we have a ton of opportunities of where to go to church. And even though church attendance has declined over the years, we still have a number of opportunities to go to, to where do we want to go to church. And so what happens is that we end up going to church with people who look like us, who people who talk like us, who people who believe all the same things, who use the same kind of language, who even vote like us. And so what happens, we get in these, these churches and, and we're all insulated and we are like Chester and Wilson, very content, but we still double knot our shoes. And we still cut our sandwiches diagonally. And then Lily moves in the neighborhood and things change and they learn from each other, and they appreciate, appreciate each other, and they, they understand that they do have a lot in common, and we have a lot in common, and we can learn from each other, 
and we can hear from each other. And we might learn a few things from other people who think differently than us. And vice versa. And I feel like this is just a great illustration of what church is supposed to be. That it's supposed to be like this. And so we're going we're gonna to embark on this series in the fall. This really, in my opinion, super important series of the church. And, I, and I'm calling this a space for grace. That that's what a church is. It is a space for grace. Taking God's church seriously. If we're going to take Jesus seriously, then we need to take what he says about the church seriously. And in my opinion, that's the best way I can describe a church. It is a space for grace. So if I ask you the question, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you hear the word church? It could be a building. When we drive down the street, we talk about this church or that church. That's River of Life. That's... uh, uh, that's the Alliance Church, that's Vineyard. We just, we, those are church buildings. We, just, we think of them as buildings. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's buildings, they're great buildings, and it, it's good. And you usually see a building, and, and you think of a church. Uh, we don't have a church building per se. We share a building with a school. And yeah, there are challenges for that. Uh, you can ask Don every Sunday morning when he's setting up for Super Church back in the gym. There are challenges about that. And every year, I get invited to speak to the, the faculty about how this church was involved in, the, in, in starting this school and why we share the same building. And yeah, there are challenges to that, but there are also pluses. For one thing, there, there's economic pluses for that, that we share a building. There are ecological pluses. There are environmental pluses because most church buildings sit empty 90% of the time. Our building is used almost seven days a week. It's just much more efficient. But there are challenges. I wish our bathrooms were closer. <laughs> Especially right before sermon. You know? Do I have time? But that's, we used to think of it as a building. Uh, some people think of it as an event. We talk about it as an event. That's the first thing that pops to your mind. We, we say that all the time. Did you go to church last Sunday? I'm going to, are you going to church this Sunday? I went to church this week. It's some event that we go to, that we participate in. And we used to talk about in Dallas about doing church and how doing church in Dallas was a really weird thing. Because Dallas, I mean, everybody's familiar with the Bible Belt. Well, Dallas always considered itself, I don't know what it is now, it's been so long as I've lived there, but Dallas always considered itself to be the buckle of the Bible Belt. For years, the largest church, the largest non-Catholic church in the world was in Dallas, First Baptist Dallas. It was like the buckle of the Bible. And we used to talk about how hard that was to do church because when you moved into Dallas, regardless of your background, and you were in a business of some kind, there were certain churches you needed to go to to make the, to make the right business contract, contacts. So if you were starting a business or you getting a job or whatever, you would need to go to Park City Baptist or Highland Park Presbyterian or First Baptist Dallas or Highland Park Methodist. And that is where you would make your business contacts. And it was essential that you went to church to one of these places if you wanted to succeed in business. So you can imagine it's a, diff- it's a weird place to do church in Dallas. And we talk about that as an event. You may talk about it as an organizational structure. And usually that's in denominations. That it's some kind of hierarchy that you've got a pastor or you've got a, an elder board or whatever. And then there's all these people down below. And it's kind of this structure, this organization. Or you may talk about it as a group of people. 
Now, you may know, if you're sitting there, you may know the right answer to that question. But my question was, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? And oftentimes, it's one of those other three options. It's an event. It's something I go to. Or it's a building. Or maybe it's it's an organization. That is an important thing to, to consider because we have to talk about how do we measure success? How do we measure the success of a church? And that's one of the things we're just, I'm just going to launch the topic today. Okay, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. We're just going to launch it and get into the details next week. But what do we, how do we measure success? We in America, we're really good at business. Really good at business. And so what has happened is that this corporate mindset, this corporation philosophy sometimes spills over into the church. And we think it, and we treat it like a corporation. We treat it like it's a business. But a corporation is there to make money for their shareholders. That's not our purpose. A corporation may treat their employees well. They may not treat their employees well. A a corporation is not really concerned about spiritual health or human flourishing. Uh, Corporations are not really considered the pillars of morality in the community. They're not concerned about the common good so much. The primary goal is to make money. So it is different. And when we get into things like, and we kind of treat it like this organization or an institution like that, we get mixed up on what the purpose is and how do we measure success. We confuse effectiveness with faithfulness. We are called to be faithful, not just effective. Corporations want to, are concerned about their business. Let me give you an example. Wendy's. Let's take the Wendy's hamburger chain, for example. The business of Wendy's, they're not that concerned that they want everybody to eat hamburgers. They want people to eat Wendy's hamburgers. Our job is to connect people with Jesus Christ. Our job is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. We're not here to set up some sort of of structure, some sort of... of, of, um, of organization, that if it's an event, then, then people in the church, they feel like customers. They're consumers. What am I going to get out of it here? If we, if we treat it like some organization, then members begin to feel like cogs in a machine, that we've got to keep this institution going. We've got to keep this going because we need all these workers, and, we, and, and it's so easy that they can be part of the church and, and give their talent and their treasure and their time to the church and yet not experience the love and the joy and the peace that comes with mutual support and mutual sustainability within the body. It is different, different than that. It's different than a corporation. We are called to do something else. We are called to connect people with Jesus. Richard Halverson said this several years ago. It's a a must-use quote, but it it fits our our theme for this morning. He's the former uh, chaplain for the United States Senate. He he says this, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women created on the centers, I'm sorry, centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe to become a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. Now, that's pretty simplistic 
view of church history. But I think his point is well taken. So we begin by asking, what did Jesus intend? And I would argue that he intended for the church to be a space for grace. That it's not a series of events. It's not an organizational structure. It's not a hierarchy. It is a space for grace. The New Testament never speaks of a church building. It speaks a gathering of the church. And so we need to go back, and this is what we'll be doing in the fall. We'll go back to the New Testament and see what the New Testament says about the church, what Jesus says about the church. What does he say about it? And the New Testament says a lot. Now, we can't recreate the first century, okay? A lot of churches want to go back and say, we're going to do a first century church. I always want to go, which one, Corinth? It's, that's, that's, the, that's the corrupt one. We cannot recreate the first century. We cannot recreate the 1950s. We can't recreate the 1970s. We are here in the Columbia Gorge in 2022. This is where God has called us. And this is where we are to be the church. We don't get to recreate some idyllic past that we have in our mind. We're here in 2022. And what does it mean to be the church in 2022? And so we look what the New Testament says. And yes, the New Testament does talk about gathering together in homes and things like that. It doesn't mean we have to gather in homes. He talks about the structure. You don't, you don't see any structure in the New Testament church until you get really to Timothy and Titus. You start to see some of the deacons being appointed in Acts, but really very, very little structure, very little organization. And I know that there are churches who, who think you can find the biblical way to organize a church, the biblical way to govern a church, and this is the biblical way, and this is how you do it. If you don't do it any other way, you're doing it wrong. And that becomes more important than the mission of the church, how it's organized, how it's institutionalized. And I know that from personal experience. Because right when we were in language school, getting ready to go to, to the field to South Mexico, and we were going to be in church planting, we had to, get, uh, we had to serve under veteran missionaries for a year. We were supposed to go to Leon and, and serve under this one couple. But right before we finished language school, the mission split. And a lot of the missionaries left. And the people we were going to be working for, they left. And so I had to fly up to Mexico just like month before graduation from language school and try to find a place. Where, were, where do you want us? Where are we supposed to go? And the reason they split? Well, you had half the, half the churches of the mission agency said that only elders, an elder board. Church is governed by elders and elders only. Nothing like that. That's, that's the way, that's the church way. Anybody that does it differently than that is doing it, it's not biblical. And the other half was saying, no, we have elders, but we also have a pastor. And these guys were saying, no, we only have one pastor, and that's Jesus. We only have one shepherd. There's no pastors. And so the church, the, the mission split over that, over organization. And they think that's more important than the mission of the church that we're willing to divide over that. But like I said, we can dedicate all this stuff, where we, but, the, but people in the church will either feel like customers or they'll feel like cogs in a machine. It is clear, it is clear in the New Testament that people are the vessels of the presence of God. We are the incarnate of the Messiah, of the triune God. 
It is not the program. It is not the structure. It is not the hierarchy. It is not the event. It is the people. All those other things, they're just facilitators. All those other things just help us develop that. I love that Don uses the greenhouse metaphor for children's ministry here because I think that is the perfect metaphor for a church. That we don't make, them, we don't make people grow. Only God makes people grow. But what we can do is provide an atmosphere where sun can get in, where the plants are well watered and the soil is taken care of, but God provides the growth. And I think seeing the church, not just the kids' ministries, but seeing the church as a greenhouse, I think is a great metaphor for the church. It's not these organizations, it's not the events, these are just helpful things. You see, you hear a few words every now and then if you're reading any kind of material or hearing other preachers, and they talk about, we used to talk about people being, whether they were saved or unsaved or Christians or non-Christians or whatever. Well, now they're using the term churched or unchurched. And my question is, how do you church somebody? You don't church anybody. We connect them to Jesus. We connect people to Christ. We don't church anybody. And I, I just came across a new one just uh, about a month ago. That now they're talking about some of the, the, the millennials and others who are leaving the church. Well, these people are de-churched. That's ridiculous. You cannot church, you cannot de-church, you cannot unchurch. We are connected to Christ or not. All of that to say, that's why I wanted Rob to read that passage. Because when we get to Matthew 18, we tend to think that this is just a bunch of conglomerate of random teachings of Jesus, but they are not. Matthew is writing to a church, to his community, and he's recording things for this community. And if you look at Matthew chapter 18 very carefully, it's all, he uses nothing but family terms. Family terms. If there is a metaphor for the church, it's family. It's family. And he uses family terms for that whole chapter. He starts off talking about children. And he says, you know, in fact, you adults, you need to trust me like the children trust me. They crawl up into my lap. I love on them. You need to trust me like that. And then he goes on to say, and, and if you cause them problems, if you cause them damage, you're in big trouble. His, his, the church needs to be kid-centric. Kid-centered. And he says, that's where it all starts, with family. And he says, these children, they're not my biological children, but they're my children. And the children in our church are our children. We start with that. And he starts right off the bat talking about family. I remember my parents always voted yes on every school bond that came through. Always voted yes. And one time I asked them after we had got out of school, I was in college, and I said, well, how do you, why do you still vote for the school bonds? And he goes, well, you don't have any kids in school. And he goes, yeah, but the Berries have kids. The Bradleys still have kids there. The Westers still have kids there. These are our kids. And we need that mentality. These are our kids. And then he goes on to talk about how, <clears throat> how to treat them. And then, then he has that, what I wanted to focus on was the, the parable of the sheep. And then after that, he talks about fairness and he talks about forgiveness within the family. And what does he say? When your brother sins against you. And Peter says, how, long, how, often, do I re, how often do I need to forgive my brother? And Jesus says, 70 times 70. He says, that's the, that's 
the family. And it's not that idealistic family we used to see in the sitcoms, you know, where everybody's happy and jokes around and stuff. This is a real family, right? You know, we, we have a lot of undiagnosed mental issues out here, you know. We have a lot of emotional stuff going on. We don't always get along. We argue every now and then. It's a real family. Amen. And the cornerstone, the center part of this whole chapter is that story about the sheep. And we, we westernize that, that, that story also. We act like we think it's like the sinner out there and Jesus going out to save a sinner. Now that's part of it. I mean, that's part of it, okay? We're, we're talking about God does love, save, care for individuals. But the sheep is lonely, is out there by himself. The problem here, there are other stories where Jesus talks about saving sinners, but this isn't one of them. The issue here is that he is apart from the fold. He doesn't go to the sheep and say, you need to repent. He goes to the sheep to gather them back and bring them to the fold. So the sheep is out there by himself, eating grass, what sheep does, you know, and, and all of a sudden going at it, going at it, and all of a sudden the sheep realizes, it's kind of cold out here. It's kind of lonely. Where did everybody go? Well, they had already been called down back to the bottom of the mountain. And Jesus, the shepherd, is counting them. And he says, there's one missing. And the sheep says, I want to be counted. I want to be part of the fold. I'm lonely. I'm unprotected. I need the fold to sustain me. And Jesus leads them to go get the one sheep to bring them back. Bring them back to the fold. Because that's what the sheep needed. The sheep needed to be counted. And that's what we need. We want to be counted. We want to be seen when we are here. And we want to be missed when we are not. And there's somebody is texting me. We want to be seen when we're here, and we want to be missed when we are not. And that's the problem with the sheep, the one sheep. He wasn't counted, and he needed to be counted. Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. It's not complicated. It's not philosophical. It's not even really theological. He's just saying that, Jesus, this is what God is like. When one of us is missing, he goes after us. He runs after us. I believe that the church that embraces this idea of a family, of a true family, is the church that's best equipped to meet the spiritual and relational thirst of our society today. That the church who takes this seriously, to be a family, we can be the best equipped church to satisfy the relational and spiritual thirst of our society today. According to the Putman Institute, I just read this week that 71% um, of the millennials express feelings of desperate loneliness. And of the Gen Zs, the generation after them, 79% express feelings of desperate loneliness. And these are the generations who have unlimited access to entertainment, 
but the avatar, the digital figures, those don't satisfy. We can meet the, we can meet the needs, the spiritual and relational needs of these generations who are desperate, desperately lonely. That is our calling. We are the incarnate community in the world, in the world full of avatars and digital images and Zoom meetings. We are the incarnate. We are the household where healing takes place. We can be the family, the surrogate family for lonely people. We can be the surrogate mothers and fathers who, who need to minister to the younger mothers and fathers and express wisdom and, and share wisdom and share love and share support and sustainability and, and all those things. We can be that and eventually point them to the love of Jesus. That is our calling. I'm going to close with a quote from Howard Thurman, who I absolutely love. He's a, a, a civil rights leader back in the 50s and an amazing theologian. And he writes this in one, of his, in one of his books. He writes a book called Jesus, the, Jesus for the Disinherited. He says, insulation is something that is spiritual. There is something inside of me that wants to pull up the drawbridge. Sometimes I do it because I'm afraid. Sometimes I do it because I'm clumsy and awkward. And I don't know how to establish a relationship or relationships with my fellows that can float my spirit to them and bring their spirit to me. But now Jesus says that God is like the shepherd, seeking always to find those who are out of the community with their fellows. And when they have found it, when they have found their community with their fellows, then all the world seems to fit back into place. And life takes on new meaning. The cry of anguish of the sheep was the voice of identification that the shepherd heard. That is how God is, if we let him. We are going to take communion this morning. That's about as good a symbol as any to, uh, of, uh, of the church, of what we're doing. Uh, I, was, I get on other churches' websites every now and then and look to see what's going on and see, look for ideas and things like that. And how many churches have the pastor and his wife you know, right there on the front there. And it's like, these are the stars of the show. <laughs> well, guess what? I'm not the star of the show. This is the star of the show. Communion is the star of the show. This is why we do this. Uh, it, is, um, it is in the, the, um, the very presence of God. It is a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. And I'd mentioned that before. It is a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. In the same way that the American flag is not just a piece of material. It means something. It represents something. Uh, food can be uniting. We eat at weddings. We eat at birthday parties. We eat at anniversaries. We eat together. It can be uniting, but it can also be dividing. And anybody who grew up with a junior high experience or high school experience like me, we knew very well, real quickly, how the division, how the hierarchy works in high school about where the people ate, which table was which. And um, 
And I always felt sorry for those people who were on the unpopular tables when I was there. No. That would have been me. And we joked about this before, how the two guys I used to eat with all through junior high for three years, you know, always looking out over there where all the popular kids ate lunch. It can be dividing. This strange Jewish diet that kept them separate for God's holy purpose separated them. But then Jesus comes along and says, this is the fulfillment, and now we're fulfilling what God promised Abraham, that we would be a blessing to all nations. And he breaks it down. And so the table is a unifying symbol. It cuts across every generation. It cuts across every ethnicity. It cuts across every economic class when we come together to share the table. And yes, they're small elements, but they are symbolic. They are symbolic of a reality. They are symbolic of a people who live within the realm of the kingdom of God. They are symbolic of a people who work within the realm of the kingdom of God. They are symbolic of the people who bring the kingdom of God to others and connect them with Jesus Christ. That's what this is symbolized. So we're going to be partaking this, this meal. We are acting out a reality, a reality that abolishes the hierarchy, that levels all the social status, and it declares our true identity as the people of God. So we're going to do it this morning. It is a bodily act, it is a social act, and it is also a spiritual act. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, of preparation. And then uh, I'm going to ask the, the worship team to come up, and then uh, Jerry and Bob and Aaron are going to help me. And we're going to do it by intention. We do this normally at Shepherd of the Valley, but we haven't done it in a while. And intention means you come up uh, as the Spirit leads you, and you take a piece of bread, and you dip it in the, in the chalice, in the cup of grape juice, and take it there here at the front. You can watch the worship team because they, they're experienced at this. Uh, just so you know, we, we try to take everything in consideration. There are gluten-free bread, if you want that. And we're also allowing, putting these out as well, these little kits. If those who have health concerns and want to be more careful, please take one of these. Feel free to take one of these back to your seat, and, uh, and you can take communion with that. It's a little bit, a little bit safer. So we are doing this a little bit differently today than we've done it in the last uh, few months. So uh, we're going to ask that you do that. So I'm going to come down. Lead us in some prayer, and then we will take communion. You guys will come on up. I'm going to pray some psalms and some scripture verses, and I'm going to pray it in first person. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me in silence, but reflecting to yourself, using your own first person. So let's pray. We pray with the psalmist, I am in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I have made the Lord God my home. Come, Holy Spirit, to my mind and bring comfort. Come, Holy Spirit, to my heart and bring peace. Come, Holy Spirit, to my soul so that I may experience the Father's love. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Reflecting on the week that has passed, show me, Lord, where you have been at work at my life. In what ways did I experience your goodness 
and when did I hear you speak? And we'll spend some time in silence there. Paul says in Romans, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. Father God, would you remind me now of the ways in which I have sinned this week in thought and word and in deed. And I take a moment to confess my sins before you now. God of grace, thank you that when I was lost, you found me. And when I was ashamed, you forgave me. Nailing the accusations against me to the cross, I receive your forgiveness now. And based on the authority of God's word, I declare that our sins are forgiven. Father, your eternal word speaks to us. Though the mountains may be shaken and the hills removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. My covenant of peace will not be removed. Amen. In Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, he writes, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant. New covenant in the blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink and eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this bread and this cup and what it symbolizes and what it signifies, our relationship with you. We ask you to take it to nourish our bodies, but also to nourish our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.